0: The things that he was thinking and getting from the Lord I need one of those music stands up here and I got so excited I'm like this is going to be an amazing sermon so I just want to encourage you I also want to speak something to you it was interesting after I preached last month um, you got to be smarter than the stand guys can you help me with this After I preached last month, a couple of people approached me and said, were you talking to me about, were you talking to me when you were preaching? And I was like, no. That's called witchcraft. That's manipulation and control. We don't do that from the front up here. But all of you should at some point in the sermon, hear something that God has specifically for you. That's why we come. Because that's the proof of my sonship. That's when God loves me so much, he goes, excuse me, that point, that's for you. Why don't you deal with that? So, all right, we're going to pray. God, thanks for Eric. Thanks for this amazing word that you've given him. We just thank you, Father, for the anointing that's in the house. We thank you for your glory. We thank you for your presence. We value that so much, Lord. Without that, this is all a waste. So we're just so grateful to you tonight. We're also grateful for what you've given Eric. I just pray that you would help all of us just to open our hearts to your training, to your proof of your love for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, do you need it? (laughs) I need that.
1: It's great to be with you guys. Uh, A quick warning, I know some of you guys ask for notes, and this is one that you're probably going to want the notes to. So if you are a part of our text message number, the 916-246-2468, it's kind of like grade school, it skips by twos, right? So you text your name into that number, and then to make sure you join, and then if you reply notes after you've subscribed, it'll send you a link to my notes right now. So... If you like to write things down but don't want to do it tonight, I've done the work for you. You can follow along if you want, so heads up for that. Uh, Tonight's going to be a different message for me because I usually, you know, teach from something I prepare to study, but I'm going to give you a stream of dialogue and a revelation that I have not had in my entire life. And so these words, you're going to hear it unfold as kind of this conversation I'm having with the Lord. But I missed you guys last month. I heard last month was rocking. Um, I was up in Oregon, which is where I'm from, visiting my family for my sister's wedding. And the funny thing is when you go home, you see all your childhood photos, right? And you kind of like remember these phases and stages. And so I see pictures of me at four and 10 years old and 20 years old. And I see all these things and I look at these things. And I'm like, that's a different life. Like I don't even recognize my state of mind and myself there. And my wife knows my history, and she's kind of perplexed about how I am the way I am now based on what she knows about my past. So let me give you a Cliff Notes version of my past. My most vivid memory as a child was this crippling fear of abandonment. At the youngest age, I can remember waking up, and if I was the only one awake in my house, I would like—I have this panic attack, like I'm alone. I, like, even though people are asleep around the house, I could not stand to be awake and have no one else be awake with me. And so I had this like fear that rolled into this chronic homesickness that I would s- routinely sneak into my parents' bedroom and lay next to their bed on the ground. And I would do sleepovers as a young kid. Well, I couldn't do any sleepovers as a young kid because at about 10 p.m. I'd be calling for my mommy and the folks would like come and get me. And, uh, one time this, this mom said, hey, I'll, I'll put a song by your mother on, you know, the CD or the tape at the time. My mom's a singer and like just make it worse, you know. And, but I was that kid at outdoor school who'd be like breaking down at college at 18 years old. Kids were like, let's go play volleyball. And I'm like sniffling to myself in my dorm room wanting my mommy. And so it was humiliating and perplexing. It defied reason. I had this thing, the shadow over me. And I've shared with you in the past before that my innocence as a child at the third grade was lost as I was introduced to pornography on a school bus. And that brought so much guilt and shame to my childhood, and it questioned my salvation. I gave my hand up in every single altar call there was, you know, convinced that I hadn't done it right. And then during those times, the Left Behind series came out, too, remember? Which, you know, Jesus comes and only takes the believers and leaves everyone back, which triggered all my homesickness feelings, too. And I was just a wreck. And in middle school and high school, I developed this terrible anxiety as I tried to live up to the accomplishments of my siblings. My brother was valedictorian, went to Ivy League school, traveled the world, played music, invented computer software, was valedictorian in my high school. My sister, also valedictorian, was a professional athlete. She went to go play on the Olympic team, was first-team All-American, played pro beach volleyball. I mean, crazy, right? And then there's me, and I like dirt bikes, so there's that. Um, I wasn't valedictorian on my very first semester as a freshman. I got a B, and it crushed me. To no fault of anybody else, self-inflicted pressure and comparison. And let's say I have like less than perfect genetics, because at the age of 15, which is really convenient because I just changed from a school where my class was 50 people to a class my freshman class was 300 people, And that is the time when my genetics decided to give me cystic acne and developed horrible acne where you're looking with children and almost every single day a child's like, what's wrong with your face? Just riddled me with horrible anxiety and horrible insecurity. And so I was kind of a mess. I was trapped in fear and insecurity and low self-esteem and shame and hopelessness and a sense of failure and ultimately depression. And during those late years of high school, early college, I would actually contemplate suicide, and I remember one of the reasons, like, I wasn't that motivated, because I wouldn't be around for people to feel sorry for me. But I, I found myself in this depth of despair, but here's the crazy thing, looking back on it now. The depth of my despair did not meet my experience. It didn't match. It was disproportionately worse. I mean, I have acne, okay, whatever. I have good siblings, okay, whatever. I have homesickness, all right. But I had this crippling despair. I had amazing parents who gave me the world. I was loved, I was supported, I was provided for. I didn't have any drug or alcohol abuse or any of addiction. I was involved in church. I was never abused in any form. My parents embraced my childhood dreams, but yet somehow I was this total dumpster fire on the inside. Completely disproportionate in my head to what my circumstances are. And if you know me, the first two thirds of my life matched nothing like the, the most recent third of my life that I am now, because I'm very positive. I'm this entrepreneur, I'm this you know, happy-go-lucky guy. I usually say, what's the worst thing that can happen? And, and so my wife will reflect on the past and be like, kind of help me understand what happened there. How did you go from those things? And it's just kind of like, I don't know, I just kind of grew out of it, I guess. And so as I was up in Portland, seeing these childhood photos, remembering those states, I came back and was reflecting on our last, the last message I gave, which is the thief in the garden who steals our fruit. I began to ask the Lord, like, what was up? What was up with me from like ages 5 to like 20? It's kind of this like really tough time. And I was like, was there something wrong with me? Was there something wrong in the inside? And the Lord says very simply, you were being demonically tormented. I'm like, uh, well, um, is there a second opinion up there at all? Because that sounds really intense. Because when we think of people who are demonically tormented, we think of the, the growling, the foaming of the mouth, the breaking of the chains, the eating of the live chickens, you know, things like that. I don't know if that happens. But I was raised in a Christian home, and I went to church almost every single week and had a pretty normal life from external experiences. And so I'm like, how, where, why? surely if I was being demonically tormented, somebody would have noticed because my experiences seem completely normal on the outside. And the Lord just gently replied, not all demonic tormenting is public nor visible. But I'm like, wait, I know my Bible. In the Bible, it is, right? In the New Testament, demonic activity was very public, if you were demon-possessed, the entire city knew your name. You didn't need to believe in God at those times to believe in a demon. It was so prevalent. And when Jesus sent out the disciples to go cast out demons, a lot of the disciples probably had like names in the back. There It's like a Jimmy, John. Okay, like They had this hit list. And so that means that in Jesus' days, the demonic activity was very public. Does it seem odd to you at all that our experiences, if that is true, if the demonic activity is, is true, if those experiences are pretty foreign to our average life now. Why is it different? What changed and what happened? Well, two important things changed about demonic warfare. First, everything changed when Jesus gave you the authority to cast out demons. Everything changed at that moment. This meant that any public demonic tormenting would become a target of a Holy Spirit-empowered believer. I think that Jesus so whooped the butts of the demons there that the demons started to rethink their strategy. They're probably like, you know, foaming at the mouth It's really bad for business right now. That spiritual warfare back then was kind of like whack-a-mole, right? It's like, there he is, let's go get him. And so in other words, when we received authority over the demonic... The devil changed strategy so that he would be harder to identify. Colossians describes the works of the devil as the kingdom of darkness. So we know his works are not open in the light and public and visible. Not always. And so this makes a very, very important point about Satan's goal. The devil's goal is not to make a scene in your life. The devil's goal is to make a stop in your life. Satan's primary goal is to stop you. Everything he does is to stop you. Satan is not trying to build a reputation for himself. He's trying to oppress a people. And so Satan is totally fine if something else gets the credit as long as you remain oppressed, suppressed, and neutralized. Because the devil would rather oppress you in secret than humiliate you in public that way he remains unopposed for as long as possible and because of this i believe a lot of people are oppressed and neutralized and suppressed and they don't even know it and i'll get into the how and why in a minute so i'm wondering in what ways this is pretty intense information i sat on this information about a week as like maybe it was a bad burrito last night i don't know what ways am i being tormented how? Did I have a demon? Was it, you know, it's darkness, it's not a light, I get that. And God didn't specify any more than that, whether it was an evil spirit, a demon, I don't, it honestly doesn't matter to me. But I'm like, well, how and where? And he gently replied, you are being tormented in your mind. The plagues I experienced, the fear of abandonment, the anxiety, the comparison, the low self esteem, the insecurity, the hopelessness, the depression, the despair, the self hatred, the shame, are all experiences of the mind. I spent my entire life, probably until I was 21, being tormented in my mind and I never knew it. The second thing that happened, why is this different than what Jesus experienced? Is that we changed. 1 Corinthians 3:16 says that you are the temple of the living God and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Awesome. He also gives us the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2:16. So the nature, the territory of where the enemy would want to attack changed. We got a major upgrade. And so like any decent criminal, Satan naturally changed his territory for attack and his strategy. And he moved largely from physical oppression, I believe to mental oppression. So I suggest that Satan is doing every bit amount of control over people, except instead of controlling people through the flesh, he is doing it through the mind. Because if he can influence your mind, he can operate through your flesh. And most importantly, it will go undetected here 's the most important thing to know is that the battleground, I believe, for our time is in the minds, and even though Satan did very public tormenting back in the Bible days, ours is different. In fact, I would suggest that harassing and tormenting thoughts are the most private form of oppression one can have, but we call it bad moods. we give labels to our experiences, we give all sorts of rationale for, for it, and so For me, as I'm coming to this, like this realization is starting to make sense. And I start thinking about these past thoughts. It's like, I remember those days seeing those photos. I remember thinking those thoughts. But here's the thing. I go back and like, I don't know how I even had those thoughts. I know me. I look back at these photos. I don't even know how that was even me. And the Lord said, because those weren't your thoughts. You hear us saying a lot that your feelings are not the truth. We need to add another one to that list. It says that not every thought in your mind belongs to you. Not every thought in your mind belongs to you. And we know this because we have the mind of Christ and the mind of Christ cannot have a sinful or self-hating thought. Yet, we have those thoughts. They're in our head, but they're just not your own. So my question to God was like, okay, how did I tolerate this for 20 years? And not do anything. Surely I heard a message. Surely I had prayer. Surely I walked with some great Bible teachers. Surely I was exposed to great things. How did I last 20 years or so having no clue what was happening to me? And then I remembered that during the time of that era, I held a particular theological belief. I believed a Christian can be mentally ill, but cannot be influenced by a demon. During that entire area and phase of my life, I believe that a Christian can be mentally ill but cannot be oppressed or influenced by a demon. And by the way, I do not believe like some that any mental illness is a demon. That's wrong. But I also think that, that the opposite is true as well. That you, you, can't, you can't make that opposite extreme. And so I believe that once you're saved, you got Jesus, well, bam, that's it. Because John 8.32 says that you will know the truth and the truth will set you Free. So, oh, perfect! So I'm free. Like I have Jesus, kapam, I am done. And so I lived most of my life never believing that anything could oppress me. But that's not the truth. A few years ago, I did a series on Christians and demonic oppression. You can look it up on our website. I won't go into all of it, but the conclusion is that being a Christian does not make you immune to the demonic. You don't become a Christian and then like get this like Pope Mobile kind of bubble around you. You go around everywhere, you're all protected and safe. And just because you belong to God does not mean that Satan can't influence you, that he can't impact you, control you, inhabit you. Because even Jesus rebuked Peter, who had Satan speaking through him and says, I rebuke you, Satan, get behind me, which is one of the more humiliating passages in all the Bible. Peter's like, what? (laughs) So we know that you can be Jesus' best friend and still operate with a voice, a thought from the enemy. But the truth is, is that God says he purchased you that you are his. You are a people for his own possession. You're people for his own possession and purpose. So you belong to God. And this is where people get confused, because they believe that because they belong to God, that they cannot be harmed by the demonic. So you're God's possession. Amen? And that is the very thing that makes Satan a thief. He's accessing something that does not belong to him. The devil is called a thief for the exact reason that he's stealing from God's possession. And what are you called? You're called God's possession. Satan wouldn't be a thief if you didn't belong to God. Satan wouldn't be your enemy if you didn't belong to God. Let me give you this further analogy. If you came here tonight and you left a window open in your house and a thief climbs in, does that thief own your home? No. But he has control over your house until you arrest him and take him in handcuffs. But while he's there, he can steal, kill, and destroy. So you're not owned by the devil or the demon or any spirit, but you can be inhabited, influenced, manipulated, and controlled by one. Amen. Making sense? Alright, so if you want more on that, there's a message on that somewhere out there. But here's the thing that was my theological belief that I believed you could not, as a Christian, be influenced by a demon. Here's what's crazy. I was actually taught out of my deliverance. I was taught out of my deliverance. I was taught that I couldn't be impacted and affected by anything out there, and so I didn't even know where to look because I didn't even believe in it. And so I actually believe that you can be discipled and taught in ways that can prolong your oppression. You see, intellect is what gave the Cover to the enemy to operate in my mind and go undetected for so long. See, my oppression was hidden behind something I learned and believed. And I realized this about my past that demonic strongholds like to hide themselves behind my intellect. I had a lot of knowledge, a lot of verses I'd rem- memorized, I had a lot of stuff in there, and that is the exact hiding spot that my oppression. Because intellect doesn't need to be about what you know. Intellect actually can be a form of disbelief. In other words, the things that you don't believe in. And we'll say these things sometimes like, well, where's that in the Bible? You know, like, that's a popular one. Or, the devil doesn't really do that. And I'm like, well, he really did. So um, I don't know what to tell you now. And so there are places where intellect takes the form of disbelief. And because we don't find something in the Bible, we can easily think it's impossible. And let me tell you that while the Bible is all about God, not all of God is in the Bible. The same is for the enemy, Satan, that not all of his works and strategies are contained in there. If we limit him to what is known, we expose ourselves to all the areas he could go. And so what I believed was impossible for the enemy to do, that gave, I believe, Satan the exact permission to do that thing. What we believe is impossible for the devil can give him the exact permission to do that very thing. And not only did it give him permission, it gave him a cloak to hide under. And because if the devil can find an area in your life to hide under, it means he's found a place that he'll be uncontested. And if you don't even realize it's him, you're likely going to fall back and blame God. Which brings up a great point about the enemy. He is looking for places to attack you where there will be no opposition. This is why now James 4.17 makes a lot of sense, says resist the devil and he will flee. It always seemed like a tactical, like I'm supposed to do this. It actually reveals his strategy. He finds places that there's going to have no opposition, no contest, and that's the place he wants to occupy. And then when we occupy and resist him, that's when he flees. It reveals his strategy. He's looking for these places where you think it's impossible for him to enter in places that you will not be able to oppose him. And so what I found is that when I believed that I was fully free is when I was the most oppressed. I would almost extend the same realization to you that if you believe you're fully immune to the devil, fully immune forever, you probably already are oppressed. That hurts your feelings, I'm sorry. That was me. I thought I was immune and totally free, but I was totally oppressed, and I thought that my mind was immune. But here's the crazy thing, is the scriptures warn us about this very thing. It's 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians eleven three 3 says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, what does it say? Your minds may be led astray. Paul issues his warning, saying, I'm concerned that your minds are going to be led astray by the devil. And so we need to live our lives as though our minds are these battlegrounds of the enemy, not battlegrounds for warring against ourselves, but warring against an actual enemy. And that is what was missing. I was taught that my thoughts belong to me. I was taught that I was in a battle with my flesh, and my flesh was the enemy. And I had to get my thoughts under control. And so in the Christian journey, I believe that a lot of us are actually fighting this fight against ourselves, and we actually have a theological term for it. We call it sanctification, where we war against ourselves, trying to bring ourselves in these journeys and trying to bring ourselves to develop self-control, discipline, purity, you name it. But here's the thing is that the reason that demonic oppression of your mind is so damaging is that it comes in the form of your own thoughts and your own voice. The reason this is so dangerous is that when the enemy is going to attack you through your mind, it's going to come in the form of your own thoughts and in your own voice. Not every thought you have is your own. And do you know what happens when you believe that every thought is your own? When we believe every thought is our own, we war with ourselves all those years i was fighting but i was fighting the wrong enemy and you cannot win a war if you are not engaging the right enemy i was fighting i was swinging i was doing every single thing i was praying fasting i had accountability i had more accountability groups than an accountant that doesn't even make any sense but if he did i would have it more and the reason that i remained so tormented is because i never knew which direction to swing and in fact, I looked at the mirror and I hated myself. And when the Bible says we don't war against flesh and blood, we think of other people. I actually think it means about us. Yeah. We don't war against flesh or blood. You don't war against your own flesh and blood. And I don't think I ever grasped fully that my old man is dead. The book of Romans says you're dead 46 times. Not 10, not 20, 46. <laughs> your old man is gone. And how many Christians right now are struggling in their Christian walk, fighting against the old man, never realizing they're fighting against something that actually doesn't exist? And the problem with making yourself the enemy is that you develop self-hatred. When you make yourself the enemy, when you are responsible for every thought and every single thing is wrong, when you make yourself the enemy, you develop self-hatred, which actually really explains why it's so suicidal. Self-hatred could be a sign of demonic torment where the demonic spirit has convinced you that you are the problem. The enemy's plan is to torment you and to convince you that the problem is you, so that you will chase your own tail. And when the enemy tricks you into believing that you are the problem, he actually is teaching you to self-sustain your own oppression. When the devil convinces you that you are the problem, he is teaching you how to sustain what he puts in place. I actually don't think I had a demon inhabit in me. I think I was taught to sustain the lies that he put in me. You've heard with us with Christ's life that a lie unchallenged becomes truth. A number of years ago, Sean Lawrence took it up one more level and says, a lie accepted defends itself. I never realized I lived that until a week ago that a lie will begin to cloak itself and defend itself in rationalization, logic, and reason, making space and invitations for other lies. Because I looked at my entire journey and I found all these things connected, that my fear invited anxiety, and anxiety invited insecurity, and insecurity invited comparison, and comparison invited hopelessness, and hopelessness invited moral failure. Moral failure invited shame, and shame invited self-hatred, and self-hatred invited self-destruction. I can look at every single mental dysfunction, every mind game I had, and I actually found it related to one previous one. It's like every single mental dysfunction had this like house party in my head for 20 years, and they all sustained each other because no one wanted to go home. And if the demonic can establish that lie, it produces a cycle. From self-destruction, it starts all over again to fear. And again... And again, and the demonic, if he can plant a lie that begins to self sustain, he can just kind of like back up and like you're doing perfect. And he can leave. And I look at my life as key moments where these lies came in, not only went unchallenged, but they got accepted, and I got taught to replicate it and to inflate it and to make it bigger. And it was like a fortress in my head. Are you guys doing okay? You guys want me to go? This is my time check here. All right. So the Lord gave me two passages. And perhaps the best passage in all the Bible about the battlefield of your mind is 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. It says, the weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Everyone say strongholds. Strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought... And make it obedient to christ first off the fact that we have to take captive every thought proves again that not every thought belongs to you you would not if you have the mind of christ you wouldn't have the need to take captive thoughts and escort them out of your mind but i want you to recall the word strongholds the word there for strongholds is actually translated castle or fortress We have divine power to demolish castles and fortresses. I don't think he's talking about actual physical structures. Remember, because he's talking about the mind and the thoughts. What do castles represent? Kingdoms. Paul, I believe, is saying that there are kingdoms of thought in our minds which have created castles and fortresses that need to be demolished. Castles and fortresses, what are they made of? Bricks or stones? And it takes a lot of bricks and stones to create a castle and fortress. And I believe that every lie we believe is used to create a fortress in our minds for another kingdom. And what do castles and fortresses do? They provide cover and safety to those who hide inside. Satan is building his kingdom in your mind with lies and then giving him safe protection inside. And from that place he torments and he lobbies more lies and so if you're going to build a castle or fortress with stones and bricks you need something else you need glue or mortar now remember that word arguments this word does not mean debate and i used to think this is like oh i'm going to go into apologetics i'm gonna have the best argument for believing in god i was like so zealous for arguing with people But Paul, again, is talking about minds. The word argument here means reasoning, judgments, and decisions. The glue and mortar that holds a lie in its place is reason. It's judgments. It's decisions. In other words, lies are so hard to remove because they are held in place by logic, reason, and belief who say, well, I need more self-control, or it's my fault, it makes sense, it's my own flesh, it's impossible to be influenced by the demonic, it's in your mind. So lies, in case you haven't noticed, are believable. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe them. Lies are believable for a reason. They need to make sense in order to be believable. And the lies in my head were so hard to dismantle because the glue that held them together was so convincing. My circumstances gave myself proof for why I should believe what I believe. But if something makes sense, we don't usually suspect the devil, because it makes sense. He likes to hide behind the reasons and the intellect we are building in that. So you can't simply remove a castle or fortress, like just pick it up and move. No, you have to dismantle it. You have to demolish it. And so it's a great exercise to dismantle a lie, which is great, but we have to realize that there might be multiple lies actually building a fortress that you actually have to demolish it brick by brick. As you demolish one lie, you have to ask, how did that one get there? Did that one have any friends? Who brought it here? Oh, it's related to this one. And you go after that lie because we can fight situationally with one, but we have to realize that there's a fortress in the castle and a kingdom that has spent a lot of time putting bricks into place. But I was still troubled by John 8.32, that the truth will set you free and you'll be free indeed. Because that was like my linchpin verse of like how this is impossible. And I felt the Lord say, go go, go research that word a little bit. So John 8.32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set, set you free. And so first off, it's important to know that your freedom is not measured by how you have it, it's measured by how you use it. A judge... If you're in prison, can declare you free, but you have to walk out of the prison. Yeah. So, freedom's not measured by if you have it, it's measured by how you use it. And so, the word truth here is aletheia, is what it means. It means truth, true, or in reality. The root word, aletheis, means are you ready for this? Not hidden and not concealed, or in reality. You could translate this that you shall know the reality and the reality will set you free. See, there's a difference between knowing the truth and knowing the reality. You can have Jesus and believe in him, but still live in deception. See, I knew the truth, but I did not permit the truth to expose what was really concealed. I never knew what was really going on. It didn't matter how much truth I pumped into my mind because I was living in a way where truth was in an additive. I would add truth to my life. Truth is not an additive. Truth should replace. It's designed to go and tend to kick out something in its spot. And so we add truth to our mind and we say, oh, that's really good. What is the thing that has to move out of its place now? Truth is not complete until it has exposed the corresponding lie. Truth will only provide you freedom when it exposes and dismantles the lie that it was in its place. We just usually move it over and put it in a different corner. We don't kick it out. And so you will not be free until you allow the truth to reveal what is really going on. And so what are we to do? If you're enduring something like this, how do you get free? First, let me tell you that I believe that we can fight the devil through through biology. I believe man partners with medicine. I believe God partners with man in the development of treatments. So I believe that Satan exploits biological deficiencies that medicine provides us assistance. We can fight the devil through biology and close holes that he is exploiting. So hear me that, amen? My father's an expert on depression. There's some great things there. I'm not trying to say that all things are spiritual. There's a lot of biological things that God has anointed man to invent and develop. That said, spiritually, I think we have two options. One is to d- dismantle the fortress, the castle, brick by brick. The best one I'm familiar with is Christ's life. Because you go back to birth. You write with your left hand as like a third grader, humiliating, but really effective. And I realized that was one of the things I actually got to go back and look and pull out the base of bricks From this mental fortress in my mind. And so in the next email, I'll send out a link for anybody who's interested in it. We'll start an interest group as well as I have a worksheet. It's called a lie detector. It's great. What happened? What do I believe? What's the lie? What's the truth? And you basically can inventory this thing. And it was really powerful. I didn't know how powerful it was until I'm looking back on my life. The second thing is to open up your life to someone with more spiritual authority. Notice I didn't say open your life up to someone who's really biblically smart. Now, these people with more spiritual authority, they're kind of like the hyper-religious people we know, which are your best friends. Because you can be Bible smart, but be authority bankrupt. You can have all this Bible knowledge and have zero authority. You can be intellectually strong but spiritually weak. And so that was my problem is that a lot of people surrounding my life that were very intellectual, but no one had the spiritual vision to see what was going on in my life, nor do they have the spiritual authority to guide me out of it. And someone with spiritual authority, greater spiritual authority than you is very important because Luke eleven twenty one 21 says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he relied. You need someone in your life who's spiritually stronger than you that can help dismantle what is at your equal strength. Because you will not be able to fight something that is of your own strength. You need to have someone help you that is stronger, take authority and move that. And I love Bible studies. I love scripture memorization, All those different things. I remained oppressed in that because I didn't have an understanding of what authority was. And so I remember actually at age probably 24, 25, sitting in Eric Waterbury's living room probably with Roman and a few other guys. And they laid hands on me. And I'm like, I'm hearing things I've never heard and like terms and phrases. I'm like, this is, I don't even know. This is crazy. But they took an interest to say, the Bible's great, but we've been commissioned to have authority. They were the first people I realized who were applying authority in their faith. Same thing with Roman Amundsen. We would get together each week, and so we'd pray. And I remember one time we were praying, and he was like pulling swords out of my back, which seemed like really weird at the time. And I'm like, I don't know what you did, but I like feel better for some reason. Because he saw what was inside and addressed it with greater authority than I permitted. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let me be clear that not everything is the devil. I know I'm talking a lot about the devil. Not everything's the devil. And in fact, if you look for the devil, you're going to find him every time. But your mind is the most significant spiritual battleground we'll ever face. And we need to be prepared for that battle. So my goal in closing this, this message is not to bum you out. It is to bring you awareness of what is at stake with your mind. Not all your thoughts are your own. And so therefore, our responsibility is not on having the thought. Our responsibility is what we do with it. Did you act on it or not? Did you let it stay or did you kick it out? And this should give us brand new language for how we should describe what's going on in my mind or in our minds. I'm actually going through this right now. It's like, I feel things, but it's not me. Yeah. Like, my discouragement doesn't match my circumstances. And we should be okay to talk with trusted people we know that, that can say, like, man, I'm having thoughts that just are, like, not matching reality. I don't get it. My reaction, dis- my reaction to this situation is disproportionate than what it ought to be. We should be able to say those things and say, I'm experiencing a level 100 And it only warrants a 10. Help me understand where the other 80 or 90 is coming from. And to be okay with that. And to say, I think something is wrong. I'm having this experience. I'm having something that is, it is real in me, but it's not matching the reality of what's going on. And so I want to give you... That that understanding that your thoughts aren't your own—that's the most significant battleground. But I also want to give you the different definition for victory. I thought victory was the absence of attack. I thought victory was I'm in my green pastures, I'm in my Pope mobile, I am like completely preserved and protected. That is not what victory is. And, pro- and in fact, we are promised that we're going to have opposition. If you're a believer, you're promised to have opposition. So it's not even a biblical thought by a long margin. Victory over demonic oppression is not the absence of attack. Victory is being able to identify when attack is occurring. We need to live our lives realizing that there's a battle going on in our minds. There's a lot at stake and that our thoughts are not our own, that we are designed to live a powerful life, to be able to dismantle the fortresses and to dismantle the kingdoms that are storing up because the devil can influence your mind. He can oppress your flesh. He can oppress every area of your life. And that's what I got for you. I love you guys.